Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the peace plan put forth by Ukraine that will be discussed by representatives of 30 countries on August the 5th in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, with the Saudis acting as the brokers for a peace deal between Russia and Ukraine to end the war, but with Russia not invited to the talks. Joining us is Mary Ellen O'Connell, a professor of law and a professor of international peace studies at the Crock Institute at the University of Notre Dame. Previously, she was the vice president of the American Society of International Law, and her books include The Art of Law in the International Community, What is War, An Investigation in the Wake of 9-11, and The Power and Purpose of International Law, Insights from the Theory and Practice of Enforcement. Then we'll examine the recent trip to Saudi Arabia by the Biden National Security Council Director Jake Sullivan, supposedly to bolster efforts to revive the Abraham Accords aimed at establishing diplomatic trade and energy ties between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Joining us to discuss whether such a peace deal is possible with Israel so divided over Netanyahu's power grab in removing the checks and balances of the judicial branch is Sarah Lee Whitson, the Executive Director of Democracy in the Arab World Now, Dawn who was previously the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch's Middle East and North Africa Division. Then finally we will discuss a small man getting smaller as the DeSantis campaign increasingly trails Trump and assess whether Chris Christie and possibly other Republicans will be able to penetrate the MAGA base with the truth about Trump's criminality and mob boss mentality. Joining us is Sidney Blumenthal, the former assistant and senior advisor to President Bill Clinton and a senior advisor to Hillary Clinton. He has been a national staff reporter for the Washington Post, Washington editor and staff writer for The New Yorker, and his books include the bestsellers The Clinton Wars, The Rise of the Counter-Establishment, and The Permanent Campaign. And his latest book is All the Powers on Earth, The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, 1856 to 1860. And we'll discuss his article at The Guardian, Weak, Small and Reckless, How Ron DeSantis, Republican Napoleon, Met His Waterloo. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, background briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now is Mary Ellen O'Connell, who is a professor of law and professor of international peace studies at the Kroc Institute at the University of Notre Dame. Previously, she was the vice president of the American Society of International Law, and her books include The Art of Law in the International Community, What is War, An Investigation in the Wake of 9-11, and The Power and Purpose of International Law, Insights from the Theory and Practice of Enforcement. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mary Ellen O'Connell. Thank you, Ian. It's good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And we're just learning from a story in the Wall Street Journal, and it's been verified by statements from the head of the presidential, in in effect, the head of Zelensky's office, Yermak, in Ukraine, that 
there will be a peace plan put forth by Ukraine that will be discussed by representatives of 30 countries on August the 5th in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. And presumably the Saudis will act as brokers in a, in a possible peace deal between Russia and Ukraine to end the war. But what's conspicuous, of course, is that Russia is not invited to these talks, although Yermak is saying that these are preliminary talks and then later they'll have a wider array of people, presumably the big players like China and India. So what do you make of this this peace plan so far? I'm really happy to uh, hear about any moves toward peace. Anyone putting forward any ideas I think is good at this point. It's, we're almost 18 months into the conflict and the uh, suffering of the Ukrainian people and the natural environment is unspeakable uh, after all this time. So any movement toward peace is good. On the other hand, I would, from what I know so far, the Saudi meeting does not appear set to be much more than what happened in Copenhagen in June when another group of countries, India, South Africa, Turkey, real players in the in, in what could be um, uh, negotiations, serious negotiations aimed at a ceasefire and then eventual um, uh, um, genuine peace talks. This might include more states. Um, China was invited to the Copenhagen meeting in June. I have not yet heard that China is um, uh, is committed to being in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia might be able to um, uh, entice more countries who, that are really um, uh, um, key to an eventual ceasefire and peace plan between um, Russia and Ukraine. So maybe I'm more hopeful that it will be somewhat more substantive than what happened in Copenhagen, but we'll see. Lots of countries were invited. China was invited to Copenhagen. Brazil was too. They've again been invited along with India, South Africa, Turkey, um, those countries all attended in Copenhagen. So it looks like a repeat with maybe a bigger or greater hope that Saudi Arabia will bring in more countries. Again, any discussions are good. And of course, there are a lot of other reasons besides eventually, you know, besides actual movement toward a concrete peace plan now for having this meeting and for inviting um, the 30 countries that are on the invite list. So it's, we're told that it's a 10-point peace plan. And obviously, having had these previous meetings in Copenhagen and now coming up on the 5th of August in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, What's the process here? You are refining a process involving more countries, but without the other party, Russia. So at what point do you present this deal? In other words, what's going on in these meetings? Are they trying to, is anybody sort of trying to say, well, the Russians will accept this and they won't accept this? Or I just don't understand the process. It seems one-sided. yeah, I, you're right. It is one-sided. Russia's not there. Um, and there's not... What I want to see is a trusted mediator, and that's probably a coalition of countries to really get a a mediating body that can bring the two parties together to speak seriously about 
an immediate ceasefire so that genuine talks can go forward toward a lasting peace. Nothing like that is going to happen in Saudi Arabia. As you pointed out, Russia is not even invited. So that is what I would consider to be a, a genuine peace negotiation. What I think is happening in Saudi Arabia is Ukraine's understanding, President Zelensky's understanding, as was already demonstrated in Copenhagen in June, that many diplomatic efforts have to be made in order to get the Russians to begin to negotiate seriously in order in order to begin to see who might be the that group of honest brokers that can bring the parties together um, toward a, a, a ceasefire that can actually work and an eventual peace agreement. Without China on board, without Brazil, India, South Africa, it will be very hard to really get the Russians to negotiate. So I think this is one of the preliminary and important things that might happen in Saudi Arabia is to separate, bring some daylight between the other BRIC countries, Brazil, India, China, and South Africa, that leaves out the R in the BRIC, Russia, to use their influence to get the Russians to begin to think about um, uh, joining serious ceasefire discussions. The other uh, challenge that Ukraine has is war fatigue. It's very expensive. The, the Russians have now put a huge cost on much of the global south by uh, canceling the food, the grain deal, um, and, and bombing um, storage of grain supplies in southern uh, Ukraine, he, Putin invited African leaders and tried to tell them that they didn't have to worry. He was going to provide the food, but it was obvious to those African countries that continued to press Putin to renew the grain shipment deal that that's their only real um, hope of having secure food supplies. With that kind of cost, we're going to see countries, many of which were already rather neutral between what they saw as the U.S.'s ally, Ukraine, and Russia, um, uh, beginning to weaken in their support of Ukraine, maybe doing side deals with Russia to ensure food supplies. This is going to be a real challenge for Ukraine and Zelensky to keep the support that country needs to prevail against great, great odds. It's amazing how well Ukraine has done until now. They need um, diplomatic and material support ongoing until the Russians um, become reasonable, live up to their international law obligations, and come to the negotiating table and really realistically discuss um, fulfilling their obligations under international law vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. So, Mary Ellen, why is it then that the United States can't bring India and the BRICS countries like Brazil and South Africa to the table. I mean, a lot of people have noticed that the global south and frankly most of the world's population does not support Ukraine, but they do support Russia uh, or they're on the fence. What's the failure there? Is, is it because people now around the world are leery of the United States because of the debacles in Iraq and Afghanistan? What's your interpretation of why it is that we don't have the diplomatic clout to get India 
for example, to talk to Putin and get him to the table and get this thing over with. You make such an important point, and it's something I've said from the beginning. Actually, I, I wrote a piece about the 2014 um, occupation of Crimea and, and intervention in eastern Ukraine by Russia and said then that Germany, India, China, everyone had to step up and send a message to Russia immediately that this could not stand. It was a clear violation of the UN Charter of Ukraine's rights to territorial integrity and political independence. And the Obama administration had a lackluster negotiating plan. They imposed a few uh, sanctions that Russia paid very little attention to and continued its occupation and, and intervention in eastern Ukraine. What we've seen, in addition to a, a very weak diplomatic emphasis, I mean, this has been a, a post-Cold War problem for the United States since the Clinton administration. Money has continued to pour into the U.S. Department of Defense and to starve the State Department, even though we were in a post-Cold War world where that gigantic machinery in the Department of Defense built to oppose another colossal military power, the Soviet Union, that that Soviet Union was gone, and yet we continued to pour money into the same budget and seriously neglected environment, diplomacy, the things we should have been doing to prepare for the middle of the 21st century. But that was compounded, Ian, and this is where the real chance for the Biden administration to make a difference immediately on behalf of not just Ukraine, but the U.S. and the rest of the world. And that is that we not only overemphasized military, we engaged militarily and so often unlawfully. One of the big comments in the global south, although I must say, you know, 143 countries did vote against Russia in the UN General Assembly, even countries that very, very angry with the United States for its own violations of international law. They did support, but there were 52 countries that um, did not, uh, sorry, 141 voted in, uh, to condemn Russia, 52 um, either failed to show up or voted in favor of Russia or uh, just abstained, including, in, importantly, India and China. So what, what? why? This is the UN Charter we're talking about. This is common global law that is so important that, that we are, have been committed to since 1945 and the end of the last most horrendous war, the Second World War. What has happened? Well, it's been a real failure of U.S. leadership. We have used or followed the political ideology of realism and intervened in countries, um, most significantly the 2003 invasion of Iraq was a blatant violation of international law that many countries around the world see as no different from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It was different, but you can understand why people don't see the difference and don't see why they should be condemning Russia and deals that Russia might offer them um, and support the U.S. when the behavior from the perspective of much of the world is, uh, is so similar. But the U.S. has compounded that impression. So, of course, we stayed too long in Afghanistan. We um, are continuing to use drone strikes. In the last year of the Trump administration, the U.S. attacked Somalia, this poor country that is in such disarray. 
we we attacked them by air 60 times. It's, it's unfathomable how much uh, wreckage and violence um, and cost we we invest in military attacks and not in rebuilding societies. But here's what, how we've compounded all that and why we have not been able to get India and China or South Africa and Brazil um, to bring pressure onto their their fellow BRIC member, Russia. The United States talks in this terminology as if we have special privileges in the world. There's this phrase that we've heard President Biden and um, Secretary of State Blinken use time and again, the rules-based international order, the Western rules-based liberal international order. They're not talking about international law. If you read any of the literature on what this rules-based international order is, the the literature inevitably says it's a world in which the U.S. is the leading power. Well, how does that sound to India and China? Under international law, as members of the United Nations, they all have equal status. Sovereign states are equal under international law. They all have the same rights and duties. The U.S. doesn't get any special rights to use military force in countries. So when the U.S. says, you've got to follow us, the leaders of the rules-based order, instead of saying, Russia has violated the most fundamental principle of the U.N. Charter. It is binding on all of us equally. We're going to go forward as a country, the United States, and lead in terms of enforcing and respecting international law. The reason you should be in coalition with us against Russia is because we're committed to the common law of the international community. Why? haven't the U.S. diplomatic officials use that language. It's, it's beyond my understanding. We've got so many examples of Russia and China in particular pushing back on the U.S. use of this rules-based order terminology. They continue to say, we want to hear the U.S. talk about international law. And much of the world, and certainly this U.S. citizen, wants to see our government comply with international law model compliance so that when we're talking to Russia about the invasion of Ukraine, we can say, we walk the talk. Or when we tell China to respect the boundaries of the South China Seas and respect the environment, we sound so bankrupt because we're not a party to the law of the sea treaty. These are important, but let's stick with, with Ukraine and what's happening in, at the weekend in a few days, presumably. If I had any advice, if, if, if the Biden administration would listen to me, I would say, if that's great that National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan is going. He needs to bring a legal advisor who really understands international law, who understands what the authentic properly interpreted rules of the UN Charter actually are. We've spent so much time coming up with our own interpretations. We've even produced a document you might recall um, during the Obama administration to try to justify carrying out drone strikes on U.S. citizens that became a laughingstock. We said we could attack people because of imminent attack when we said that imminent could be sometime in the distant future. Well, nobody takes that seriously. It's time for the United States, if we want to be this true leader 
um, and 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 have influence on countries like China and India in this important moment, we have to use the language that everyone expects and is their due. It's the right of other sovereign countries to have the same standing under international law as the U.S. And that's going to, that would be a huge breakthrough in Saudi Arabia if the U.S. would amend its language and use the actual terms and be committed to the substance of the law of peace, the U.N. Charter. And then I think you could see some real movement in, in Saudi Arabia, some real surprise um, and the beginning of a movement toward Russia, China, um, in particular, uh, discussing how they can play a more constructive role in bringing Russia to the peace table. Well, Mary Ellen O'Connell, I thank you so much for joining us here today. I'm afraid we've run out of time. And of course, as the China has its own peace plan, and so does the Pope. So yes. some, something's yes. got to give here, and I appreciate you joining us. You're welcome. And again, I've been speaking with Mary Ellen O'Connell, who is a professor of law and professor of international peace studies at the Kroc Institute at the University of Notre Dame. Previously, she was the vice president of the American Society on International Law, and her books include The Art of Law in the International Community, What is War?, An Investigation in the Wake of 9-11, and The Power and Purpose of International Law, Insights from the Theory and Practice of Enforcement. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the recent trip to Saudi Arabia by the Biden National Security Council Director Jake Sullivan, supposedly to bolster efforts to revive the Abraham Accords aimed at establishing diplomatic trade and energy ties between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Sarah Lee Whitson, the Executive Director of Democracy for the Arab World Now, Dawn, who is formerly the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch's Middle East and North Africa Division. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sarah Lee Whitson. Thanks for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Sarah. And what do you know about the possibility of a peace deal being brokered by Saudi Arabia to end the war between Russia and Ukraine. There's a meeting that's supposed to take place. It's actually been arranged by the Ukrainian side. They expect representatives from 30 countries to show up in Jeddah, I think starting on uh, August the 5th, quite soon. Russia is not a part of it, but this follows... Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor's trip to Saudi Arabia. So it's not difficult to assume that somehow Sullivan was laying the groundwork. What what do you know about uh, what happened with Sullivan's meeting with Mohammed bin Salman? Well, um, obviously I wasn't there, but from what I've read, the main focus of Sullivan's visit um, was to try to orchestrate a normalization deal with Israel. Uh, and that is the main source of negotiation. Now, there's been some reporting of Saudi Arabia putting itself forward to try to negotiate uh, some kind of resolution between Ukraine and Russia. 
Um, but uh, from what I'm also hearing at the same time, the U.S. is trying to get Saudi Arabia to increase its weapons transfers, uh, to start making its own aid and weapons uh, transfers uh, to Ukraine. So um, I think the only thing that I can see concretely from this situation vis-a-vis Ukraine and Russia is that Saudi is trying to project itself as a global player on issues that go well beyond the region, uh, as a global peacemaker, as a global operator. Well, it is a little hard to understand why the Biden administration would think that you could uh, revive the Abraham Accords, particularly with the turmoil going on in Israel at the moment. And I can't see even the Saudi Arabians as cynical as MBS is wanting to sell out the Palestinians so openly at the moment. And, you know, it's almost inevitable that there'll be a new intifada if this right-wing nationalist religious zealotry government of Netanyahu's continues on the course it's on. So how realistic is it? Is it? I mean, that's why I'm wondering whether the real agenda was working to end the war in Ukraine. Um, Well, um, actually, I think um, this effort by the Biden administration to engineer uh, normalization or peace between Saudi Arabia and Israel uh, has been uh, something that they've been working on for over a year. Uh, uh, Biden and the Biden team tried to pursue this last summer when President Biden went to Jeddah. uh, And it has been, I think, uh, one of the top driving forces pushing the Biden administration to kiss and make up with the Saudi administration. If they can extract a peace agreement uh, uh, with Israel, uh, I think the thinking goes, it will resound to Biden's benefit uh, and the Democratic Party's benefit in the next elections uh, to demonstrate all that the United States and the Biden administration has done uh, for Israel. Um, and if that includes uh, uh, delivering uh, security guarantees to Saudi Arabia in order to get this advantage for Israel, then so be it. Uh, I think that has been the driving motivation, and that is the driving motivation of uh, Jake Sullivan and Brett McGurk and Amos Hochstein's uh, recent visit uh, to Jeddah as well. It is very much uh, focusing on exactly what I said it was focusing on last year when the Biden administration was still in a denial mode, um, that what Saudi Arabia wants uh, in return for normalizing with Israel is uh, a NATO-level bilateral security guarantee from the United States, uh, as well as support for developing a nuclear plant. Um, Will um, uh, the Saudis do it? Uh, it, Given this context, the way that the Biden administration is trying to spin this uh, is that they promise of normalization with uh, Saudi Arabia will lure uh, the right-wing extremist government of Israel uh, into uh, making commitments and guarantees and concessions, which as far as I can tell amount to nothing more than halting settlement expansion. Uh, And uh, basically this is what the uh, Israelis promised the Emiratis uh, as part of their normalization deal, but of course have promptly gone on to ignore Uh, the commitments they made and are fast tracking uh, the efforts to neutralize Israel's judiciary in order to annex uh, uh, parts of the West Bank uh, where uh, they have the most settlements. 
Uh, I have no reason to believe that they will uh, remain faithful to any promises they make to Saudi Arabia uh, any more than promises they've made to, to the UAE. So it is really a grand swindle. Um, but I really lay the blame on this uh, approach at the feet of Jake Sullivan, uh, at the feet of the Biden administration, um, because of the persistent hubris, uh, unbelievable arrogance in their efforts to manipulate and engineer political outcomes in the Middle East at the very same moment uh, that Jake Sullivan is defending his relationship with Saudi Arabia and the UAE as an expression of humility. Oh, well, what can we do? This is the way the Middle East is. We just have to aim for stability. It's not even true. They still are meddling and interfering and trying to create political outcomes uh, for their own political benefit, come what may, to the people in the region. But what, which Israel are the Biden administration and Jack Sullivan thinking they're dealing with? Because <laughs> the country is so split now with these massive demonstrations, and the outcome is not quite clear, even though Netanyahu is pushing ahead with his plan to essentially curb the influence and power of the judiciary. And we know that he's that his coalition is religious nationalists. They don't understand, or, and they're not just in compromise. They're, they're basically interested in, as you say, annexing more of the, of the West Bank. It's just going to be worse and worse, the, the optics. I don't get it. I don't understand why that could be a huge boost to Biden in 2024 elections if Israel's in turmoil. Well, if Israel is in turmoil, I think that they are wishing, uh, hoping, and therefore believing that this can be contained uh, uh, domestically, that this can be resolved politically with some kind of compromise on the judicial reform law in uh, Israel, uh, ignoring the fact that Israeli protesters have been on the streets uh, for over 40 days now in the dead of summer heat. Uh, and as you correctly point out, these are fissures in Israeli society, divisions in Israeli society, uh, uh, withdrawal even of important units of the Israeli military that is unprecedented. Um, but they are hoping against hope uh, that uh, uh, it won't be so bad and everything will go back to normal and they'll lead a political compromise. Uh, and I think that the Israelis are sort of also, as, as, as Bibi does, you know, uh, playing it in both sides, sending Herzog, uh, the softer, gentler face of Israel, to appear before the U.S. Congress instead of himself. Uh, well, but he wasn't invited, Sarah. Well, I mean, that's, uh, that's the leverage that Biden has over Netanyahu, is that he's not inviting him. He, I thought he invited Herzog as a way to remind Netanyahu that you're not coming until you've, we make a deal. Well, I mean, at the same time, you'll see Israeli reports claiming that he has been invited, uh, but that they have not yet agreed on a date. So, uh, I, I mean, uh, it's not clear to me that Bibi can deliver uh, to the Biden administration what the Biden administration has demanded in terms of the judicial reform law, because, uh, A, his own survival depends on these reforms in the judicial reform law, uh, or he'll find himself in jail, and B, his coalition will collapse. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not perfectly clear. I really don't think the situation is perfectly clear uh, to anyone, but 
What is clear is that the Biden administration uh, is negotiating with Saudi Arabia to give them a bilateral security agreement uh, and to give them a nuclear plant and to give them what I am sure MBS is demanding, and that is his own red carpet invitation to the White House as a condition for normalizing with Israel. Um, does the situation in Israel make achievement of those goals much more difficult? Ironically, yes, it is the situation in Israel that's upsetting the apple cart of the Biden administration selling out America and America's interests uh, to Saudi Arabia for the interests of Israel. So Israel's extremist politicians are, are undermining uh, uh, um, the magical gifts that the Biden administration is trying desperately to bestow on them. So just to touch on the the Ukrainian-led uh, deal that Zelensky and Yermak, his chief of staff, have organized on August the 5th in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, where MBS will be hosting uh, heads of state and, and others from Chile, Egypt, the European Union, Indonesia, Mexico, Poland, the United Kingdom, the United States, Zambia, etc. Uh, Russia is not invited. If this peace deal, I mean, there's other, the Chinese have a deal as well, and Putin floated, and the African visitors that visited him last week in St. Petersburg, although there were, there were only 17 representatives as opposed to 46 the last time they had a meeting. So that doesn't seem like a strong possibility. The Chinese thing, we don't know what that is. But this one is, as a, again, it's an Ukrainian initiative, a 10-point peace plan. Russia's not invited. But Saudi Arabia is stepping up as the as the broker, and uh, you mentioned earlier they may even sell more arms to the Ukrainians or sell arms to the Ukrainians, since that's all that <laughs> the that's about all they do is buy arms, right? They got an extraordinary inventory of arms. So, at the end of the day, we don't know what's going to happen, obviously, Sarah. But if some kind of peace plan comes out of this meeting in Jeddah, that's going to be a huge boost for Mohammed bin Salman, won't it? Uh, you know what? Uh, it's a boost I'd be happy to accept because the uh, prospect of any kind of a peaceful resolution to the conflict in Ukraine, uh, the war with Russia, uh, I think is a, a, a global priority. And uh, I would love to see uh, these countries reach a peaceful resolution to their uh, uh, disputes. Um, sadly, I think it's a war that the United States is not interested in pursuing a uh, diplomatic end to, a peaceful resolution to, uh, and would be happy to fight till the very last Ukrainian. Um, American defense industries are drooling at the prospect of a long stalemate, continued weapons transfers, now even cluster munitions being sent, of course, uh, uh, to Ukraine. So. Uh, uh, frankly, I would be very happy uh, to see Saudi Arabia succeed in a negotiated end to this war sooner rather than later. It is devastating the country. And if we duplicate the amount of devastation and spread it out to other parts of Ukraine for another one year, two years, three years, uh, the country is going to look exactly uh, like Aleppo looks and like most of Western Syria looks uh, uh, today. 
Uh, will they succeed? Uh, uh, I don't know. And certainly no harm in trying. I think it's a good thing. But I think just like Saudi Arabia's rapprochement with Iran, and now uh, potentially uh, acting as a middleman to negotiate a peace deal between Russia and Ukraine, if it's happening, if it's indeed truly uh, going to emerge, I think it upends uh, uh, the what the U.S. is counting on, which is to continue uh, to control um, developments in Saudi Arabia, which is to continue to treat them as on the U.S. side unquestioningly, which is to want to continue to sell arms to Saudi Arabia on a war footing with Iran, uh, on a hostile footing with Iran. These things are not coming to pass um, because Saudi Arabia is increasingly acting like an independent player um, that wants only one thing from the U.S. primarily, and that is uh, military muscle, military support and protection. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Sarah, obviously there's a lot of sports washing going on with Saudi Arabia to, again to clean up Mohammed bin Salman's image around the world and the live golf thing. And I don't know whether we still don't know who owns the 7% with the Saudi sovereign wealth fund owns 7% of uh, PGA LIV, but we don't know who the 7% is. And there's rumors that it could be Donald Trump. He's certainly going to benefit from his golf courses getting uh, tournaments. So we don't know whether that's a way to funnel money to him to get him reelected. We do know that both Netanyahu and MBS want Trump back in the White House, that's for sure. So there's also, I I believe the Saudis are now moving into tennis. They got Billie Jean King suggesting that that's not a bad thing to have have this murderous guy and his money. So give us an update on sports washing by the Saudis. Um, Well, a couple of things. Interestingly, uh, Dan Quayle and his lobbying firm, uh, in their recent filings to represent uh, LIV Golf, uh, have claimed that it is 100% owned uh, by uh, the uh, Saudi government. So uh, there seems to be a discrepancy between the shareholder agreement um, that LIV Golf's lawyers exposed uh, during their litigation and what uh, LIV's lobbyists have claimed in their LDA filing. So that mystery is one that remains to be uh, solved. In terms of the uh, acquisition of PGA Tours, of course, there's been a Senate hearing and there will be more sen- uh, Senate hearings organized by Senator Blumenthal um, that are rightly going to examine the national security implications because this is not just about sports washing. Um, sports washing is a very small benefit, I would say, of the much broader Saudi strategy of uh, uh, influence and control of America's uh, economy, uh, uh, of America's businesses, of America's institutions, sports institutions among them. And that is why Senator Blumenthal has demanding Uh, that the Saudi government and its public investment fund turn over a complete disclosure of all of their investments in American uh, businesses, companies, and institutions. Uh, LIV Golf uh, and PGA Tours acquisition is a drop in the bucket of their acquisitions of significant stakes in technology, finance, banking, uh, gaming, fashion, art, movies, the the, the industries are really too numerous to uh, name, 
And they have recognized the most valuable asset of all is to buy the politicians themselves, buy the political and military officials uh, themselves. Uh, I was just listening to one U.S. senator who, uh, in an unattributed remarks today, um, was saying, well, it's a good thing that former American military officials are uh, going to work for Saudis and Emiratis um, because they're not dictatorships. They're, they're actually monarchies. And it's a good thing for our uh, uh, military and political officials to go work uh, for them um, because if we don't, then the, then the Chinese and Russian military officials will. So this is the kind of mentality that is basically allowing Saudi Arabia to buy our democracy and our democratic institutions. Because if that's what it takes to win against China, uh, then, then that seems to be okay. Well, I wanted to ask you, unless you can tell me <laughs> what ridiculous senator that was that said that. But um, I thank you for joining us, Sarah. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Sarah Lee Whitson, the Executive Director of Democracy for the Arab World Now, Dawn, who was formerly the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch's Middle East and North Africa Division. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into how a small man is getting smaller as the DeSantis campaign increasingly trails Trump. And we'll assess whether Chris Christie and possibly other Republicans will be able to penetrate the MAGA base with the truth about Trump's criminality and mob boss mentality. Since it cost a lot to win And even more to lose You and me might have spent some time Wondering what to choose Goes to show you don't ever know Watch each card you play and play it slow Wait until that deal come round Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Sidney Blumenthal, the former assistant and senior advisor to President Bill Clinton and a senior advisor to Hillary Clinton. He has been a national staff reporter for The Washington Post, The Washington Editor, and staff writer for The New Yorker. And his books include the bestsellers, The Clinton Wars, The Rise of the Counter-Establishment, and The Permanent Campaign. And his latest book is All the Powers on Earth, The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, 1856 to 1860. And he has an article at The Guardian, Weak, Small and Reckless, How Ron DeSantis' Republican Napoleon Met His Waterloo. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sidney Blumenthal. Thank you, Ian. So <laughs> the Republican opponent uh, in his high-heeled cowboy boots has basically, as you point out, tried to outflank Trump on the right. And it was a fool's errand, right, from the beginning. Well, in a piece in The Guardian today, I write about uh, DeSantis's hopeless conundrum. Uh, on the one hand, uh, circumstances are beyond his control uh, because he cannot out-Trump Trump. Um, you can't uh, overthrow a cult of personality with the absence of personality. And you can't, and a narcissist never has a successor. Uh, and his problem in not trumping Trump is that Trump is there. And so he is forced back on himself. And his problem is that he is a void. I don't mean avoiding something. I mean, he is a vacuum, a nullity. 
And every time he turns the spotlight on himself, everything goes wrong. Uh, he's tried to get around Trump through stunts, um, and he's made himself into a troll against uh, Trump, but using what he calls the woke, namely a series of helpless objects he can attack from universities to trans people to gays to women to blacks and black history and none of it really works uh, against trump it doesn't make him greater than trump every time he fails he looks smaller and uh, as a result he has depicted himself as a weak disciple who is in search of an identity against Trump, whose identity is very clear. So is that to say, though, Sidney Blumenthal, that he overreached? And the one thing that's gotten a lot of attention is how he's changed the curriculum in teaching black history in Florida to the point where they're now going to teach kids that slavery was actually good for African slaves because they developed job skills for their personal benefit. Has that backfired? I mean, is that, is that a case, you know, harking on your work on the biographies of, of uh, Abraham Lincoln, is that a case of America's better angels sort of snuffing out this nasty troll? Well, DeSantis seems to know very little about history. And his distortions of history oh, have only undermined him. I mean, say what you will about slavery, at least it was an apprenticeship program. I mean, it's, uh, it's a ridiculous uh, statement of his rewriting of a black history uh, curriculum. So he, you know, and, and then he digs further and keeps uh, digging, defending it, knowing virtually nothing, um, but yet defending it. Um, the thing about DeSantis is it's a series of disconnected uh, gambits, tactics, stunts, uh, picking on people from, you know, rounding up migrants uh, who are unsuspecting and p putting them on a plane to Martha's Vineyard, or <laughs> saying he's gonna sick Robert F. Kennedy Jr on the Food and Drug Administration and the Centers for Disease Control. I mean, these are just ridiculous stunts. And it doesn't allow him to get around Trump on his right. The idea that he is somehow going to do that um, is a complete misconception on his part. He's run a series of ads since he introduced himself in politics um, in which he defines himself as somebody basically in search of an identity, latching onto other identities, including Tom Cruise and Top Gun Maverick. Um, he, <laughs> he says that God has, in, you know, has basically inspired him and wants him, and that God has created a fighter in Ron DeSantis. Uh, God, God has voted for him. Um, and he began by uh, showing himself to be uh, a Trump worshiper, uh, reading The Art of the Deal to his infant son. You know, he's really a product of the post-Trump Republican Party, not the pre-Trump Republican Party. Trump created him, you have to remember. 
He was down in a primary against a regular Republican for governor in 2018. Trump came in, chose him as his Florida man, and endorsed him and dragged him across the finish line. That's the creation of uh, Ron DeSantis. Trump never lets him forget it. Ron DeSantis is not a contender against Trump. And what offends Trump about DeSantis is not that he's a real challenger. It's that he's a betrayer because Trump has a mafia psychology about everybody and everything. Well, let's talk about the mafia a little because the only person apart from Will Hurd, who's got a long shot campaign against Trump, who spoke at the Iowa GOP's Lincoln dinner and said, you know, you can't vote for Trump because he's going to end up in jail. And he got booed off the stage and Trump was furious about it, understandably. But you mentioned in your article at The Guardian City Bloomfield that Christie is, is doing the Lord's work in effect. How much traction is he getting? I mean, obviously, what he's saying about uh, what Christie's saying about Jared Kushner, you know, is so important, and about Jared Kushner's father. In your article, you mentioned about how it was Christie who prosecuted Charles Kushner, Kushner's father, for quote, if a guy hires a prostitute to seduce his brother-in-law and videotapes it, and then sends the videotape to his sister to attempt to intimidate her from testifying before a grand jury. Do I really need any more justification than that? That's a quote from Christie, and it was a public service to put Charles Kushner in jail, and it would be a public service, I think, to put Jared Kushner in jail. But who's going to prick the bubble in terms of the, the Trump cult? Obviously, it's not going to be DeSantis because he's a pathetic sycophant and he's fading fast. Do you have hope that somebody like Christie will be able to get the MAGA people to wake up? Uh, Chris Christie is polling at 3% among Republicans, former governor of New Jersey, um, a former intimate of Donald Trump. The thing about um, Chris Christie as a candidate is that um, as he states, he is the only one who knows the score about Donald Trump because he knows the inner world of New York, being a, a former U.S. attorney from New Jersey, and he knows the world of real estate and uh, the mob and Trump's lawyer, Roy Cohn, who was a mob lawyer, um, intimately, he's prosecuted people like that. And he knows who Trump is. He is the only person in American politics um, as a politician running for office who is explicitly running against Trump and defining him as a mob boss and as a gangster. And no one has ever done that before. And Christie knows whereof he speaks. Now, Republicans are not listening, but Christie's going to be out there for months. And somebody is listening to Chris Christie because Chris Christie has turned from a sycophant into a truth teller about Donald Trump. He's not going to get anywhere um, uh, for that within the Republican Party. But... Um, He's shown what the alternative model is. You know, if Chris Christie were to succeed, you'd have to purge the entire Republican Party of true believers of Donald Trump, and you'd have no party, virtually. So 
um, Christie's on a uh, an errand in the wilderness, but uh, he is uh, in effect prosecuting Trump um, as a as a crime boss. Well, if you go back to twenty twenty and and realize that Biden only won the presidency via the electoral college by about fifty thousand votes in the key swing states. And most of those people who voted for Biden were Republicans who'd never voted for a Democrat. And it's very hard for that tribe to cross over. So these are these are the people that presumably Chris Christie is, is appealing to, to tell them the truth about who Trump is. But what scares me, uh, Sidney Blumenthal, is that this no labels group is going to try and take that group away and give them an alternative in this amorphous, centrist nonsense of a Joe Manchin or or a Kirsten Cinema on a bipartisan ticket, and I find that quite quite frightening for the Democrats because they could be serious spoilers to take away that option, which is I think important to get Biden reelected, and that is to get enough disenchanted Republicans to cross over and vote Democrat. Well, there are a number of free-floating elements running around in the political system right now. No labels is one of them. Um, Here's what I have to say about no labels, which is that um, if you assume, as you pointed out, that no labels would likely help Trump um, with with marginal voters that might flip states towards Trump, then you should assume that right now, people behind the labels have figured that out too. And you should also assume, given that knowledge, that they want to help Trump until proven otherwise. That is the simple logic of their position. There are other you know, elements out there like Robert F. Kennedy Jr. with his, you know, conspiracy of, of for a day uh, campaign um, that may hold a very small marginal group that might go to Cornell West, who uh, may want to replicate the kind of experience that uh, he campaigned for in 2000 when he helped Ralph Nader give the presidency to George W. Bush and withhold it from Al Gore and think about what the Supreme Court would look like today. So there are a lot of unpredictable uh, elements out there right now. But in terms of DeSantis, which is the subject of my Guardian piece, DeSantis is unmovable, immovable right now in the Republican Party. He's number two. There isn't going to be really a number two. He has $150 million in his political action committee. The Coke donor trust made uh, a preemptive bet on him with all their money. Murdoch, who is now disillusioned with DeSantis because he's a loser, um, initially backed him and got the New York Post, which he owns, to run all sorts of favorable stories. But DeSantis occupies the space. He is like a political corpse who cannot be moved. And as a result, he is now somebody who is the guarantor of Trump's nomination. And the, and the longer he goes on, the more he helps Trump. Not that there's another alternative who could take his place 
and somehow rise against Trump. They're all bit players of one sort or another. And they're all losers and all one way or another smaller than DeSantis. And so that's the situation that the Republicans are in. And I want to make one other comment. The idea that this is a normal political campaign when Donald Trump will be on trial for various serious crimes of all sorts and may well be convicted. Um, and that will dominate the campaign. The idea of the press corps covering it is if, as if it's just a horse race is not only absurd, but a defiance of what the reality is of what's going on involving somebody who has attempted to overthrow the Constitution and is still attempting to subvert American institutions and uh, democracy. But therein lies the problem, surely, Sidney Blumenthal, and that is that Trump is all... There are two kinds of people in this life, those that deserve attention and those that demand attention. And terrorists and Donald Trump are in the latter category. And unfortunately, the press gives him attention. So him being in jail, I don't see that necessarily playing as a negative. I mean, Biden has been a very successful president with a very slim margin, and he's managed to do a lot of interesting stuff and, and beneficial stuff, and he could have done a lot more but for mansion and cinema. And he doesn't get any press, and he doesn't seem to be able to break through to the public about, you know, just take a look at my record. Forget about this other guy who's just making a bunch of noise. The noisemaker is the one that gets the attention. So when is that spell going to be broken? Well, here's why people should pay attention to what Chris Christie is talking about and his language in the Republican Party. So Trump is not a normal candidate, and he's not simply a criminal defendant. He's already been convicted of various crimes, including sexual assault, a judge's termed him a rapist. Uh, he's, he's been convicted of all, all sorts of malfeasance already. And he's facing the most serious crimes. And we haven't yet seen the Jack Smith indictment and what's in it uh, for January 6th. He's a candidate, but he's also a criminal defendant. How do you describe that? Chris Christie offers one way of looking at him as a gangster. And, how, and so that's a real challenge to the press corps. But that's not my subject here. My subject is uh, in this article in The Guardian, the Republican contest with DeSantis uh, collapsing inevitably because um, he sought to replace Trump uh, by getting to his right ideologically, not understanding that uh, that really uh, could not succeed in replacing a cult of personality uh, when Trump is still there. And as a result, he's constantly, through his stunts, engaged in a process of self-diminishment. And yet, he's still there, and he can't be removed and helps Trump as a result politically in this contest. But just in closing, inquiring minds want to know, will Trump be the nominee and could he possibly be president again? Well, barring um, divine intervention and unforeseen events 
and acts of God, and uh, it looks like Trump will be the nominee. And what we will face are the trials of Donald Trump uh, from here through past the election. And that will dominate the entire discourse, the entire media coverage. And that's what we're looking at. We've never seen this before. Well, Sandy Blumenthal, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Sidney Blumenthal, the former assistant and senior advisor to President Bill Clinton and a senior advisor to Hillary Clinton. He's been a national staff reporter for The Washington Post, the Washington editor and staff writer for The New Yorker, and his books include the bestsellers The Clinton Wars, The Rise of the Counter-Establishment, and The Permanent Campaign. And his latest book is All the Powers on Earth, The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, 1856 to 1860. And he has an article at The Guardian, Weak, Small, and Reckless, How Ron DeSantis' Republican Napoleon Met His Waterloo. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Bye for now.